Welcome to episode 145 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Daniela Mestinek Young. Daniela grew up in a religious cult and escaped from it when she was 15 and made her way to Texas. She bootstrapped her way through high school and college and served in the U.S. Army. And now she works around diving deep into culture. Her book, Uncultured, being released in the fall of 2020, covers these topics. I follow Daniela on Twitter, but I've known her for the past few years and we've worked together on a few different projects. And so I'm excited to have her on the podcast and share her unique experience of what it's like to be in the military after living in a cult and the work that she's doing today. So let's get started. Season 3 of the Women of the Military podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Daniela. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So let's start this podcast interview with why did you decide to join the military? Can I say it's complicated? Does that count? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no. So, all right, we'll get right into it. You know, I was, I, I like to think of myself as an average girl, but really I grew up abroad in a bunch of different countries. My parents were in a pretty sort of severe and extreme religious cult. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more. I moved to the U.S. by myself when I was a 15-year-old teenager. And I sort of, you know, put myself through high school, put myself through college. And at the time, I was feeling very patriotic and very like, I did it. I, you know, I lived the American dream. I came here, I bootstrapped and I you know, I'm successful. I have a college degree. I was also graduating in 2009 with a honors degree in English and the biggest economic crisis in our generation. And, you know, in addition to that, sort of like the world I had grown up in was very insular and very closed. And looking back now, I think I, I kind of didn't know what else to do as a, as a 22 year old girl and all alone in the world and intelligence officer sounded fun. And OCS program sounded fun. And so I was like, hey, it's just three years. Let me go try it. It's such a crazy story. And 
I mean, I know your cult story, but I didn't know that it was overseas. For some reason, I thought it was in America, and I didn't know that part of your story. Yeah, so the cult was called the Children of God, and it started in California. So it was like an American-based cult, a la all the other ones in the 70s. But when things started heating up for cults, he uh, received some, you know, prophecies from God to go spread out all over the world. So I was actually born in the Philippines and grew up in Brazil and Mexico. I like to say I'm culturally confused and proud of it. Yeah, definitely coming to America was the biggest culture shock ever. And uh, I have a chapter about that in my book. Just a chapter? (laughs) (laughs) It's called Coming to America. So did you have this like drive and determination that you like needed to get your schooling done and you needed to get your degree or like what pushed you to go from like a cult to coming to America and and accomplishing so much? Absolutely. With the drive, you know, I part of growing up in a cult and part of what all cults do is teach you that the outside world is super scary and super bad and you're going to fail. And that was definitely, I was a third generation. So my mom was born in it. My you know, grandfather was in the leadership. And so when I went to leave, you know, I've been hearing all my life, like all you're going to do is flip burgers at McDonald's and be homeless and be a drug addict and be a prostitute. And so I marched rocks right past McDonald's, got hired at Chick-fil-A and <laughs> put myself through high school and college. And Yeah, you know, I think what you picked up on is true. Like at the time I felt like 10,000 people are hoping that I will fail, right? Like they want to be proven right. So they want this very like famous child of this famous couple in this famous cult to come to fail and come crawling back. And I was like, I will never give them the satisfaction. And I definitely carried that attitude of overdoing everything with me into the military. (laughs) Yeah. And so when the... You graduated, the economy was kind of in shambles, and the military gave you this opportunity to have a job and to prove yourself. You were like, yes, I want it. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Right. And I, you know, I started reading about military intelligence. I'm one of those people that like I joined through the officer, the OCS program in the army, and I researched. I didn't listen to a single thing the recruiter said. Um, Otherwise, I would have been enlisted. Um, I researched, researched, researched everything I wanted. And I was like, oh, military intelligence officer, right? A person where you're trying to like understand these groups of people that are trying to kill you. Um, And even at the time, I really did think that I would be good at that because I am coming from a world that nobody understands. And I had to learn to sort of change all my patterns of thinking. So I really felt like military intelligence was going to be good for me. So I set out to try for that. Turns out all I had to do was run fast, which is not really the best way to pick your intelligence officers, but it worked out for me. So when you go to OCS, do you you have your job picked out when you go or does it come later? No. Um, and this is actually probably one of the, the bigger failures of OCS. So you when you sign up as a, as a direct, it's, it's essentially considered a direct commission um, and you go to regular basic training as an E4 or specialist and your, you know, MOS, your job in the army is you're an officer candidate. So you go to basic training, you go directly to officer school where you are then competing. Everything you do in officer school for 12 weeks has a score attached to it. Everything you do. 
And then there's an order of merit list and there's essentially like a football, like a fantasy football draft or an NFL draft on branching day. And you get to walk up and you get to choose from what's available that year, which in our case is whatever, whatever was left after West Point and ROTC got all their slots. Like we have whatever's left and you get to choose. And so in my case, the military intelligence is very, very competitive. I think we had six slots. We had 27 people that wanted it. They kept telling us, you're not going to be James Bond. Um, also a chapter in my book, you're not James Bond. <laughs> but it was why, why I say I think it's one of the, the fallacies. And I see this in most of the way the military does leadership is, you know, leadership is about leading other people and helping teams work together better. And then in officer training, I'm not sure if it's this way for you in the Air Force, but all we focus on was individual competition against each other. So really, really divisive and hazing and just uh, interesting atmosphere in the in OCS when I went through. Yeah, that is true because you have this like competition for who, because they rack and stack everyone in the flight and like everyone wants to be DG. That's what they call the distinguished graduate. But then they like want you to do these team building exercises where you work together, but you don't want like the person that you're working with to look really, especially if you're gunning for like the top spot. And for you, you had more incentive because it was like your job determined, you know, how if you if you did well, then you got a better job. For us, it was just kind of like an honor. But there were people who were like gunning for that top spot and then they would like trip people on the way up, which is not the right thing to do. And that's exactly what happened, you know? So I met this girl in basic training who went to OCS with me, who's like my best friend to this day. Yes, she's in the book. And quite simply, she's five feet tall. She's as smart as me. She's as capable of me. She is five feet tall. She just could not run as fast as me, who is five, five, right? Um, and it really came down to, you know, I mean, it's it's a military school, right? So the, the training is tough, but, you know, competitive people are making hundreds on the test and it comes down to literally things like, you know, who's, who's a minute faster on their run? In my case specifically, because I was running you know, kind of like six minute miles fast. And so I was faster than most of the men, which meant my points were doubled, which meant there was a target on my back. So yeah, it was very, I, I learned very early on in the military, like you want to run faster and jump harder because everyone's telling you as a woman, that's what you have to do. But you will also like never have an easy day in your life because as soon as you show up, you know, I, I worked out hard, I showed up to basic training, able to max out physical fitness. And I had a target on my back from that day from everyone else. So that was Six years of managing that definitely got exhausting. Yeah, that's a really good point and something that I don't think people, I mean, we haven't talked about that in any of the podcast episodes that I've done. We're about how challenging it is to have these like two expectations. Like you want to do good because you want to excel. But then if you do, that kind of puts you at a point where people notice you and then you have a target on your back. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very challenging for me. And uh, I feel like, again, you know, my whole time in the military was just a study of group dynamics on top of what I had already come through as a child. And then now I'm actually doing a master's degree at Harvard in organizational psychology, which is kind of the study of groups. And it, it is quite fascinating, right, to see that, like, we'll, we'll look at these models of, you know, team building is not just like, take a fun activity and slap something on it. Like, right. You know, you really have to be looking at 
what you're what you're engendering. Yeah. And I think, you know, and in so many ways, I think the military does a really good, really focused kind of like leadership training and experience. But then I think in other ways, they, they just don't look at, you know, you can you can say teamwork, teamwork, teamwork all day long. But as long as you're making people compete for their careers on the individual merits, it's not going to be about the team. Yeah, that's really true. That's so fascinating. I mean, I think that's why I like following you on Twitter. I told you before we started, I like following you on Twitter because it's like you say stuff and I'm like, I have never thought about that. That's so interesting. And I bet your book will be the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, so so one of the things I think it's interesting about the the cultural movement that is going on right now around the military and, and how I think I'm sort of playing into this and, and speaking to this, you know, my book is called Uncultured. And for so long women, I mean, women in general, right? But especially in the military, it's been like, you can be here, right? Like when I joined the military, I was allowed to be in the military, not in the infantry, but in the military. But I was not allowed to let anyone sort of remember that I was a girl, right? And I'm sure you experienced this. It's like, you need to run faster, jump higher, be better. I just saw a quote that was like, uh, men in their unit are assumed to be good and they have to prove themselves worthless while women are assumed to be worthless and have to prove themselves good. And I would say like, I definitely had that experience. So while I was going through, you know, it was, oh, you know, Captain Messinek can do this. Captain Messinek, like she's the one girl that can do everything. And I never even realized till later, like how much pressure that puts on all of the other women. Right. Because it's just proving the case. And so, you know, I think what's really going on now that's interesting is women are just like, you know, we've been made forced to choose. Like you can be a professional or you can be a woman. You know, you can you can be competitive or you can be a woman. You know, you can be Daniela, one of the first women to do deliberate ground combat and get a medal from the president. Or you can be a military rape victim, but you can't be both. And I'm just saying, no, I'm both. Let's talk, you know, like we need to talk about this, right? This is, these are our experiences. And so far, we really haven't looked at like the woman's experience in the military as like something that's not an other. So when you have the other, you're always trying to be part of the group. You know, this is all the stuff I'm learning in psychology now. It's like, if you have an in-group, then you have an out-group. And the out-group is always trying to be in the in-group. And so women have this impossible double bind in anywhere in the world still today, but definitely in sort of male dominated and careers that are assumed to be more physical than anything else. It's so interesting because something you said triggered when I went to Afghanistan, they told me that they would kind of look at me as like a third sex. So there's like American women, um, Afghan women, they're not the same, but the military kind of looks at, military women and civilian women as like a third sex and I never really thought about how because I didn't when I went overseas it was kind of just like oh yeah I'm this third weird sex but I didn't realize like I've been that the whole time I was in the military so that was why it was really easy to accept yes so exactly and and it's very true right and there's this concept called translocational positionality Right. And it's basically you you have to operate one way to survive in, in one location and a different way. And, you know, I, I can explain it as like to most Americans, I seem very Brazilian, but to Brazilians, I seem very American. Um, and so it, who I am actually depends on where I am. And military women created that third gender concept 
And it was, interestingly enough, right, it was something that in Afghanistan and in Iraq was actually a force multiplier. And it was one of those assumptions that like, oh, they're not going to respect you, right? Because they don't respect women. But then actually finding out like, no, they see me as a U.S. Army lieutenant, not as a as a woman, right? So that's a different thing. But then also exactly to your point, right? Back home, it's like in, in your life, it probably never mattered that much that you were a woman until you put on a uniform. And I mean, in the army, literally part of your medical process was for them to look up under your you know, proverbial skirt and make sure that you were a woman. I don't think any other job interviews do that. And so you, you literally come into this life, new life, new organization of the military of being a woman and everything matters. And, you know, we've all heard female used as essentially a slur or a way to, to trash us. And, you know, you don't, I, I, I agree with you. I think you don't even realize it sometimes until you get out that you're like, now that I can be pretty and wear earrings and wear makeup, um, it doesn't matter nearly as much. I'm so much more of a woman. And yet that doesn't matter in my life nearly as much as it does in, in the military. And it's also one of the reasons I found out that military women have such a hard time sharing their stories and getting heard. It's because the outside world also sees us as this like weird third gender, like you knew what you were signing up for, you joined the military. So navigating that process, right? How do you tell your story when there's not a market for your story because you're a third gender? Yeah, that's so true. And It's something that when I started doing the podcast, I started with deployment stories. And one of the questions I asked was, what do you tell people when they find out you deployed? And it ended up being mostly women who responded to the survey. And woman after woman was like, well, no one knows I was in the military. So how would they know I deployed? And I was like, what? (laughs) Because I had this blog and I was like telling people. And so it was really interesting for me to hear that they weren't telling people about their story and then that's led to the podcast and now I have all these women who want to tell their stories and it's just been a change in like the culture of women willing to share their story because I feel like there's a community now of women I mean I have a bunch of women on Twitter that I follow that I don't know but they support the podcast and they support what I'm doing and I support what they're doing and I know if like I was in trouble or if I needed help I could go to them and get help. And there's this like community of women that are working to change everything. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like, we've all been through the same thing. And I actually think one of the things about being a woman in the military, like people will ask me all the time, like, well, don't you miss the camaraderie? You know, this great camaraderie that all the men talk about. And I, I started to realize like, well, no, I don't miss it. Cause I didn't have it in the military. Right. Like, and, and exactly what you said right now I have, you know, Women like you, like so many countless women, right, that we're all connected to on on Twitter and on social media. It's like we've had this same experience and we're building that camaraderie and realizing that like, you know, two things, I think it's like other people will try to dominate your story. Um, And I, I find this to be true. I always say everything I can say about veterans, I can say about cult survivors too, right? And it's like, there, there's so many stereotypes about what a woman in the military is that as soon as you, you know, my friends who are still single, they're like, I won't even tell a guy on a date until we're many dates in that I used to be in the military because it will immediately activate something, right? That sort of like, 
they, they don't know what to do. They immediately feel like they need to like step up to that. And, you know, this is also when you're writing about life in a cult, this is an, an equal thing that I've learned. It's that people think they know, you know, they think they know what it is, but it's really just this very shallow stereotypes that people have. And so as a woman veteran, as a cult survivor, like when you're trying to tell that story, it can just be really exhausting meeting up against all those stereotypes and all those things that you feel you have to prove all over again. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we're not doing a very good job of talking about your military experience. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> let's go back to it. Yeah, so let's go back to, but I think the conversation's really interesting and fascinating. So, but let's go back to your military experience and talk a little bit more about like going from the competitive nature, you got the job of military intelligence. And so then what happened? Yeah, so I, you know, I branched military intelligence. I went off to Fort Huachuca, where you get trained in, you know, Army spy school, um, which is fun and interesting for the most part. Eight months of snowboarding and waiting for class is a little less interesting, but I got trained on how to file taxes. So that was fun. And then I showed up, I got assigned to Fort Campbell to an aviation unit there, the 159th. It was the second aviation unit at Fort Campbell. It's no longer there. And I was a, you know, young intelligence officer and we were going to Afghanistan two months later. Like I got there just after, you know, all the train ups and everything was set to deploy, which is a whole other thing. I think it's interesting about like when you don't get to train with your team and then you go to war with your team. That that's very interesting. Um, that was a pretty hard deployment for me as a as a 23 year old, you know, blonde, excited, peppy second lieutenant getting kind of beat down over a year. But I, I learned a lot about doing intelligence work at the brigade level. And I was also in the right place at the right time to volunteer. So they started asking for 2011 was the year the army decided that um, they were going to start putting women into sort of deliberate ground combat missions. So of course, as you know, because you were out there before me, um, you know, women have been involved in combat in every conflict since the Revolutionary War. But it was getting to that point where it was very obvious that we needed women. Any mission could turn into combat. So women were already doing it. So why were we just sort of like artificially holding them out of deliberate combat? And so it was this, you know, not secret, but not public experiment that was being done in 2011. And I, of course, was very excited to volunteer and get out of my desk job and go patrol with the infantry. And so I got to do that throughout that whole deployment, which was, of course, you know, seemed just like a cool, fun thing to us at the time, turned into a much bigger deal, you know, turned into sort of, well, obviously the women have now proved they can do it, but they don't have the training to do it. So if we're going to be sending them out in the same place as the men, then we should, you know, send them to ranger school and send them to training. And so it has actually been really cool to see that all develop. And I got to you know, have the experience of, I wasn't full-time on the infantry team. I would just sort of show up and do missions with them and then do my intelligence job. But that was one of the, the teams in the units that I got really, really close to. And we were led by a really, really amazing lieutenant, the late first lieutenant, John Runkle. And he was this guy who really saw like why, you know, just the potential of diversity, right? Like why we needed women, like why we needed to do this. We really expected to show up to a bunch of infantry vet bro dudes that didn't want us. And instead 
I got put on a team that was like, thank God you're here. Let's go and, uh, you know, change the world. And so, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a really good experience. Came home from that, uh, got told I was going to be the, then one of the battalion intelligence officers, like my first day off leave. Um, and I wouldn't get a handoff. So, you know, it was, was army. And so went right down to the, from the brigade level to the battalion level and immediately started training up and then went on a second deployment where uh, we went to, first time I was in Kandahar, second time I was in Bagram and went over and led intelligence operations over there. Also met my husband on the flight over there, came back and was trying to decide what to do next. And was at that point in my career where I'm either doing this or I'm not doing this and knew I wanted a family and a baby. So I decided to make a different choice. That's really interesting that you found that the infantry unit was open and ready. And when I went on my PRT deployment, people often asked me like, well, what were the guys like? And they were like, you're here. I don't care that you're a woman. Like, (laughs) I felt like they wanted to protect me because, you know, I'm a woman and like they wanted to protect me. And I wasn't infantry. I wasn't trained infantry. So like they saw it as their job to keep me safe, which that was their job. And they did a really good job of it. But they knew that I had the skills and expertise of civil engineering. And so they just took me on the missions and took me where I needed to go. And I had a really positive experience with the infantry unit as well. And so it's good to hear that you had a similar experience and that they just accepted you or they needed you. I liked how you said they were like, okay, you're here. Finally, we have this for you to do. I mean, and that really was what it is, right? Because they were already operating under a very restrictive rules of engagement where they couldn't like engage with the women and the population. And, and most of the job my team was doing was just trying to engage with the population. And it was essentially peacekeeping operations, right? Not really combat. And so they knew that it was going to be this force multiplier. I mean, they definitely did do, you know, oh, so you think you want to be in the infantry, right? And they made us prove it. And I was able to sprint faster in full battle rattle than the lieutenant was in his PT uniform. And so from then on, I was just like accepted. They were Um, like, you passed the test. Yeah, yeah. They gave him a a really hard time about that, but he was cool. The same thing like you said, right? It's like they knew that we weren't there. You know, I wasn't on the patrol to be another infantry lieutenant. I was on the patrol to engage with the women. And, you know, I've written about this in my book with like the different things, right? So in military intelligence, like you have indicators, you have things you want to see that are signs of danger when you put them all together. And like men and women just have different experiences walking through the world. So when we get to a village and he realizes the sand looks funny and I realize there are no children, right? Together, we can very quickly put together like, oh, maybe there's a bomb in the road. And when you just look back at, you know, 250 years of fighting, maybe women would have noticed things, you know, or had ideas that would have kept men alive, right? And I think that's really what the military saw very quickly as as soon as we started doing this, which is just the way progress goes generally. Yeah, I interviewed Aniela Saminski and she 
was a civil affairs officer in a place that had never had a woman civil affairs officer. And at first they were like, oh my goodness, what are you going to do? Like, and then they found out like she could see the world from a different perspective. And they were like, oh, this works better. (laughs) Like we need a woman here. And it's the same type of thing. Like when you have men and women working together, we see stuff from different perspectives and then we can get better. Absolutely. And, you know, I I learned this from the brigade, one of the brigade intelligence officers that I worked under that he when he was like parsing out all of his trainees to the different units, he was like, it doesn't matter who's senior and who's junior, but every team is going to have a man and a woman S2, AS2, you know, the, the intelligence and the assistant, like every team will have a man and a woman because you just bring different perspectives and ideas. And it's, it's sort of silly to not engage that capability. I always say when, uh, when both men and women are trying to kill you, it seems pretty obvious to have both men and women trying to keep you alive. Yeah. But it's something that the military missed for so long. Sure is. Blind spot. So let's go back. You talked about your transition and you wanted to leave the military because you wanted to have a family. Did you not see being a mom and being in the army as a possibility? So, you know, I definitely always say like leaving them. Why why do you want to leave the military is always like, why did you get divorced or why did you leave a call? It's like, it's complicated. complicated. (laughs) There was many things, you know, Um, there was a lot of, you know, let's face it, we all know the military's way of doing people management is quite terrible. And I think I absolutely would have been willing to stay and try to figure it out and try to, you know, have my kid and have my family if I got to do some cool job. You know, I speak three languages, like fluently. I wanted to go do cool things for the country. And after six years of, you know, doing the 101st and doing Afghanistan, I was really excited. And it was just, it was too complicated. And it was too impossible to predict, right? Like sort of when we're, when we're nearing our thirties, we want a little bit more control over our lives. And my husband was going into the special operations aviation regiment. And so it was going to be, you know, and it it was five years of constant, constant, constant deployment. And we had a young baby. So it was just obviously easier for me. I only had six years in, he had 15. So I would get out and he would retire. And it's, you know, I, I think the same story for so many women. Yeah. I feel like if the military had some sort of loyalty towards me, where like, I always had this fear that like, I would sacrifice all this for the military. And then I get to the like 15 year point and they'd be like, okay, well, your husband's going here and you're going here. And then we would be like five years away from retirement and be like forced to live apart. And I was like, I can't sacrifice all that. And then get to the point where the military just screws me over (laughs) because... There isn't that loyalty of like, well, we want to take care of like, I think they're trying to change the culture. But at the time when I was getting out, there was no like loyalty towards keeping families together. It was whatever the needs are, the military are. And it's like, well, I can't, but it's my family. I can't just let the military determine what's important for my family. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, like I said, like when I joined, I was 22 and I had nobody. And when I was 28 with a family, like that's a completely different scenario. And, you know, like right as I was trying to make my decision, it was like, I got, I got an offer to go be a Portuguese professor at West Point, which is like amazing. Like I go get a master's, I go teach this. They were apparently desperately in need of Portuguese professor. And here I am like a captain that already speaks Brazilian Portuguese. And I was like, sure, I would love to do this. 
what's your, you know, married couples program like? And they were like, nope, don't even, don't even try. Like if you try, you're considered to be single for five years. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Like that's not even an option, obviously. And, you know, same thing. Like my, my husband was being moved to his special operations unit and I was pregnant and they just wanted to leave me on my own at Fort Campbell for 18 months to have my baby, to recover, to then go to the career course, to then tell me they would try to station me with my husband. And I was like, you guys don't understand that I don't have a contract here right. and I don't need this. And so, you know, as, as much as I, I think at the time would have loved to stay, right? And I, in my head, when I went on that deployment, I saw my career going, I come back, I go do the career course, I do a few more cool things and I get out around eight to 10 years. And, you know, unfortunately that just didn't work. And, you know, I'm fascinated now that the Air Force has just put out a policy where captains, majors, and colonels can sort of choose to exempt themselves from promotion for enough time to go, like, take cool jobs or, or do cool things. And, you know, I think stuff like that, like, I was so interested in being a foreign area officer and being a diplomat, go doing some of those things. And, you know, I would always get told, but like, but your career will be over. Like, all you will do is be a major and be a FAO. And I was like, I'm fine with that. Like, you know, like th those those jobs should exist and those paths, hopefully they're getting to where you can do some of these things. And it's not only enriching for us, but it's using our talents for, for the military. I think we, most of us joined because we wanted to be there. Yeah, I can just feel how I felt when I left the military through what you're saying, because I like, <laughs> I didn't want to leave, but I also was like, I just can't do it. And I think, like you said, the military is changing and I think they're trying to make things better and easier. But yeah, when I got out, it was kind of like, you have to figure it out. You have to get stationed together. You have to find the jobs that make it work. And I was like, and I have to raise my family at the same time. I just don't think this is going to work. And so, you know, and it's especially true for women. And honestly, if they don't start you know, all of this gender blind stuff we all know is ridiculous. You know, if you don't start looking at officer, it's not officer retention, that's a problem. It's women officer retention, that's a problem. And if you don't start looking at why, you know, it's incredibly difficult to find an officer over the rank of 03, you know, still on active duty, then compared, obviously, right, to the ratios of men, then you're not really going to start finding the problems and, and the things that, that take us out. Yeah, it's, it seems to me, or at least it feels to me, like the military is asking the women who are still on active duty, and they're like, why are all these women leaving? And I'm like, that's not who you're supposed to be asking. They don't know. They're still in. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and that's 100% true. And that needs a lot more focus, right? And, and I think they're starting to do that with Sharp, and it's really cool. But like, every time I hear like, oh, they're putting together these panels to decide, right? Or even in, I was doing transition coaching for years. And it's like, who approves the transition plan? It's the brigade commander, mm -hmm. the guy who has never interviewed for a job in his life, the guy who has never had to put a resume together, right? Like, no, that shouldn't be the people, right? You absolutely to your point, right? Like if you want to find out why women are leaving the military, show me your commission of captains, lieutenants, and E3s and E4s that are answering your questions, right? About like why women are getting out of the military. Yeah, not retired generals. 
because and the same thing is true for when you're trying to fix the culture because honestly like we probably don't have time to get into everything with internalized misogyny and the things we need to do to survive in an unequal world but when you're only asking the most senior women who have stuck it out for 30 years what needs to be changed can they even really sort of remember or see you know some of the stuff that they've just been putting up with for so long whereas like I mean, second lieutenants on Twitter are fabulous. Like they will point out everything that is wrong with your process. Um, they will also point out that they're 22 years old and still very young and green. But, you know, yeah, it's, I think looking at the younger people in your organization is something that really needs to start happening more when people are trying to figure out, like, what is driving us out? Yeah. And I think as a veteran, it's a lot easier to see some of those things that you, like, put up with that were like normal just like when you're in a cult they're normal and you get out and you're like it's not normal but when you're in it it's really hard to differentiate what's between normal because especially like if you went to college and then you join the military and your only job is military life you don't really know what it's like to be in an office environment to work and then you're in the military and it's just been really fascinating because when I left the military I was like what am I going to do? I served in the military. I can't do anything as great. And now I, now I love my job in a way that it just makes me so happy. And I'm able to serve people in a way that I didn't think I could do except by serving in the military, which wasn't true. Yeah. Um, you know, I, so I absolutely agree with what you said and it's, it's very much true. And in fact, you know, sort of the, the thesis of, of uncultured, my memoir really is that, you know, there's danger in group behavior when it goes unrecognized, right? Which is, is what you said. It's like when you're in it, you can't see it, right? You can't see how weird it is. Like all of us, when we joined the army, I'm sure the words too easy sounded weird because that's not a concept that makes sense. <laughs> Nothing's too, easy is a good thing. How can you have too easy? But by the time you get out of basic training, like you're throwing too easy around like everyone, you know, and that's, really, honestly, in, in my book and in diving into all of my crazy experiences and, and trying to see why they matter is it really comes down to that, right? It's anything can be normal if everyone in your group says that it's normal, right? Anything from, I grew up in a group that literally taught pedophilia for God and religious prostitution and 10,000 people followed it, right? To, you know, walking into a room and saying, hey, we're not in the business of hearts and butterflies, we're in the business of killing people. And that being totally normal, is just another Tuesday at a conference meeting, you know, and so it, it really is so much of this transition. And look, now I call them all I call them total ownership groups, like anything that you have to leave especially anything that other people can stop you from leaving or kick you out. Actually, an excommunication process is one of the defining features of a cult, which the military has, right? If you can be kicked out of this group against your will, um, or if it's, you know, this sort of process to leave, like, all right, there's, there's not saying that it's evil, right? But I'm saying that there is going to be very similar things here that you're going to have to go through, which is about learning about the outside world, right? My my husband retired at 38 years old. And he said to me one day, he's like, no, this is, this is just how I dress. And I said, babe, you don't know how you dress. You only have fatigues and loungewear. You don't actually know what your style is. And now he's developing it. And it's very 
suave and uh, stylish. So I love it. But yeah, it's, you know, it's that process and really finding out. And that has been my journey, like who you are, what you want to do, right? When you get out of the military, you have to pick a pick a new career, right? Just pick one. And then you have to try to translate all of your experiences from this one group and make them matter as applicable to this other group. And I think I was good at that because I did it coming out of a cult and I did it again coming out of the military. And so now when it comes down to, like you said, I feel the same way. I mean, I loved my job in the military, but now I love what I do even more. And I think like I'm getting to build a career having national and international conversations about culture and getting paid to do it. And that was the the vision I wrote on the wall four years ago. So it takes time though. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So is there anything from your military time that we didn't talk about before we kind of wrap it up? You know, I would definitely say we didn't talk about, I was assaulted on my first deployment and I couldn't report it because I didn't have the support from my command and I was technically breaking rules. And so it just, you know, I knew at the time that my career would have been ended. And so instead of, you know, being a 23 year old woman, being able to say, Hey, I just got raped. I would have been looked at as why was this Lieutenant breaking the rules and what are we going to do with her? You know, and, and, and along that line, right. Just sort of all of the harassment and attitudes towards women that are in the military, which is obviously formed me a lot is a big part of what I write about and what I do now. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really, really sad, obviously that in 2021, being assaulted in uniform is basically considered to be a hazard of duty for women when they go in. And I just, I don't think we can talk about that enough, but I don't think we can put, you know, enough focus on how when people are not equal, people are othered. And when people are othered, they're the enemy. And when people are the enemy, the U.S. military is like really good at like killing and harming their enemies. And so it it really is, I think, this focus and, and passion. And I know it drives you, it drives me, <laughs> so many of us, you know, it's like, it's not just we need to end, you know, it's not just like this guy raped me. He's a bad guy. We need to end rape in the military. Like We need to take it all the way back to when, you know, we're being told we can't do certain things because we're not good enough because of our gender. Like that's where rape culture starts. Yeah. And we already talked about that other sex type of like the third sex that's not quite a woman but is a woman and that's why i feel like the military right now is like well if we just put this pretty band-aid on it it'll go away right and it's like no it's like ingrained it's gonna be hard it's like anything that is change in like your personal life but in the military as a culture it's a lot of hard work and you can't just be like oh we'll write up this document and then it'll go away it's like no you have to like actually figure out what's going on and then work to change the culture yeah and you know we talk about values so much right and and if your values are the foundation of what you build on and then those values change or those values are seen to be bad, you need to go back and you need to dig into it, right? So in in my story, and I show this in the book, right, where this, this cult leader decided that sex with children was fine, right? It was God's will. And thousands of children were abused. 
And then eventually they stopped that policy. And this is sort of similar to the Mormons and their polygamy, right? And they stopped it, but they never repudiated it, right? Because then they would say like the prophet is wrong. And so of course it kept going on, right? Your whole organization was built on these values. And this is sort of, I think, very similar in the military where it's like, we, we need to go back to a time where we were telling women, you're not good enough, writing it into the regulations. You cannot do these things because you were born a woman. And we need to look at all, you know, every leader in the military today led during a time of gender segregation. And so they've all been influenced by that, right? It's the same way we've all been influenced by white supremacy in our culture and racism. And the the sexism is so sort of deeply intertwined in our military organizations that it it is one of those things that it's like you can't, you know, you can't fix a, a faulty house by just putting a new roof on it. You're at some point you're really gonna need to dig down into what's at that foundation. And what gives me so much like inspiration and courage and hope is that I think that the military is starting to do that. You know, we are we really are starting to see the highest levels of the leadership, like get really granular and really tactical about these little things. And, you know, we're starting to see now, I think like some of these, I love watching these young lieutenants operating in in social media and their public spaces. And they're able to be, I think, strong and, and public the way you and I probably wish we could have been. And when people threaten them, you know, the entire military Twitter like gets together and goes and stomps those guys out just the way that you should when someone threatens one of your team members, right? And I I heard this concept recently that I love that's like, we need to start talking about rape as fratricide. And we need to start dealing with it that way because we're we're pretty serious about preventing fratricide and we're pretty good at, you know, making sure when it happens, it is just one-off events and it's not a systemic problem. And I think if we put some of those same focuses and same processes and, and look at how we change some of these other cultural things and just really make it a priority. What was the the quote I saw? It was another second lieutenant. It was when the people in charge decide to make the change. I want to be part of that conversation. And I really like that thought. Yeah. So where can people find you on Twitter? All right. So on Twitter, I am Daniela with two L's, M Young. That is definitely my most active platform. I try with some other things, um, but, you know, I have a blog too, but Twitter is just like, I'm a, I'm a Twitterite. So if you want to connect, find me on Twitter. You can find Uncultured for now also on Goodreads if you want to add it to your book list. And there will definitely be, you know, fun, exciting news and updates, hopefully coming after this summer. Yeah. And it's coming out next fall, 2022, right? That's the plan. I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you and I I find I found all this so fascinating. I really hope everyone enjoys it. And I always like to end the podcast with what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me and thanks for creating this platform, right? For military women to share their stories. I've been such a fan of you for so long and I'm so like proud of what you do. My advice to military women is, or to women that want to join the military, is something I say a lot, which is information is never bad. So 
do your homework, do your research, find out, we can help you, right? You, any woman out there could message me or probably Amanda and say, hey, I'm thinking of joining the military and like, we will help you, we will connect you. But really figure out, even if you can't guarantee it, right? Figure out what exact job you want, what the path is to get there and then go find people all at all levels of that path and interview them and ask them for help. This is the same thing I tell veterans when they're getting out of the military. It's like, you need to find, you need to find someone in the job you think you're qualified for now and learn exactly what it's like, but you also need to find those people 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road and hear from them. And I think it's so important for us to keep getting like strong, amazing driven women in the military. I just want them to go in with eyes a lot more open than I did so that they're prepared for the fight they're going to have because that's that's where we're still at. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I love that it's advice not only for joining the military, but for leaving the military because that's, I think the more information that you can get with going into the military, which is one transition and then getting out, which is another transition, is really the most helpful thing for both of those because I feel like I didn't ask enough questions when I joined the military and I got lucky because a friend took me to lunch and told me about ROTC but if I didn't have lunch with him I would have enlisted and done a job that I probably wouldn't have liked and who knows what my story would have been but I don't want people to rely on luck. (laughs) And that's exactly and you know the point I think for listeners is it's not luck my favorite quote is luck is when preparation meets opportunity you know, you went and you made that opportunity to get told that information. So people that are listening, they can go create that opportunity, you know, and and go find out. And yeah, just just don't go in blind, go in knowing, you know, ask the questions and make sure you're getting like a plethora of people giving you their opinion, because that's that's the best way you're going to make the best decision. And uh, you actually reminded me, it's a great point to plug my TED Talk. So I have a TED Talk. So you can just Google Daniela Young TEDx. And I actually talk about this with transition, which would be the same thing for transitioning into the military, which is you got to find your purpose. You got to know your why. And then you got to find like the people and the process and check out the TED Talk. It makes more sense. But it's like it, it isn't just you sign a paper and you launch into the unknown, right? Like you can build a successful transition either into or out of the military without a doubt. Yeah. And I'll link to that in the show notes because that way it'll make it easy to find it. And so it'll be in the show notes if you want to go check it out. And I'll also include your Twitter profile and other social media channels so people can connect with you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And because people ask, the name is Daniela Mestinek Young is how you say it. And uh, I look forward to following conversations from listeners. to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. 
Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Thank you.